Great. Thank you, Joy, and thank you to Marco as well. Let me add my welcome to Marco's. It's good to have you with us this morning. If you're visiting or you're here for the first time, a very warm welcome to you. We are uh, starting a Christmas series in uh, Luke's Gospel uh, this morning, so uh, welcome to Luke's Gospel. Let me pray uh, for us as we come and look at God's Word. Let me pray. Uh, Gracious Father, with all the different thoughts running through our own minds, with all the different things that have been happening uh, this week, uh, we come now to your word with um, expectant and longing hearts that you might feed us from your word. Uh, Lord, we pray that you might speak to us. Pray that you might bring us joy and repentance and faith in Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Now, really, the whole of Mary's song in Luke 1 is a sort of overflow of a great surprise that she's had as she's discovered something about who God is and how it is that he works. Mary is young, she's humble, she's poor, she's overlooked, and she discovers that God's blessing is for people just like her. She finds out that the the successful life that's portrayed on her uh, Instagram feed. I've joined Instagram recently, and I now know what that actually means. On her Instagram feed, she is fed with what looks to be a successful life, the giant monthly paycheck of the rich and famous. None of that matters, she discovers. All of that is turned on its head. All of that is reversed. Worldly impressiveness, she discovers, is doomed doomed by the promise of God, now fulfilled in the life of the Son, growing in her womb. Just look down at your Bibles and let's work through it very briefly. Verse 48, God looks on her humble estate and doesn't despise her for it, doesn't cast her out because of it, which is presumably her experience of the world to this point, but instead he does great things for her, verse 49. It's the same further down in the song where Mary is no longer singing just about herself, but singing about all of Israel saying that God scatters the proud in verse 51, brings down the mighty in verse 52. Worldly impressiveness comes crashing down, while those like Mary who are of humble estate, verse 52, they are exalted. Carrying on through the song, the hungry of verse 53 are being fed, while at the same time the rich leave empty. All of this happens, verse 54, as the Lord remembers his promise to Israel, a promise which Mary now knows is being fulfilled in the arrival of the Son of God, growing in her womb. Now, this, if you like, is the sort of the eureka moment that Mary finds. This is why Mary's song is a song of great joy. It's why she's magnifying the Lord in verse 46, rejoicing in the Lord in verse 47, because God, her Saviour, reverses the mess that she's experienced all her life. That's right, Lucy. The messy injustice of the world is overturned in the promises of God. The end, she has discovered, is a reversal of her present. What she faces now is not what the end will be. The saviour that she is carrying will keep the promise to Abraham and will not follow the rich and the famous, the privileged and the important, but the humble and the poor and the overlooked. Now, I think you're going to be able to tell this morning if you've really understood Luke 1 
if you and I this morning leave with that same kind of eureka moment, if we sort of leave this morning going, I get it now, God blesses those who don't deserve it. You know, if we, if we grasp this, you know, this praising the Lord that his promises reverse worldly glory, then I think we've understood uh, Luke chapter 1. And we need to be careful just to make sure we understand it rightly, so I'm going to make a couple of points of clarification, and then we're going to come and just do three points of application at the end. So let's make sure that we've got things straight from Luke's book. Let's, uh, let's notice first that God is for the poor. God is for the poor. It's worth us noticing together from the context of Luke's book that what Mary says here at the beginning tracks all the way through. So just get down in your Bibles and jump forward a few pages to chapter 4. You'll see in verse 14 that Jesus is beginning his ministry by preaching in the synagogue. And in verse 16, he's in the synagogue in his hometown of Nazareth. In keeping with tradition, Jesus stands to read and sits to teach. And if you look down at verse 18, you'll see that he's reading from Isaiah. This is what he says. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. He rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down, and all the eyes of the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. In other words, this is Jesus' self-understanding of his ministry. I'm here, he says, for the poor, for the captives, for the blind, for the oppressed. And I'm bringing good news of liberty and healing. It comes out again in chapter 6, turn over a couple of pages. Chapter 6 and verse 20, this is Luke's account of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. What does he say? Luke chapter 6, verse 20. And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you, and revile you, and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man, Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you've received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when people, all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. Again, this is... Jesus, in his own words, picking up those same themes from the book of Isaiah, I, I'm here for a, a blessing for the poor, the hungry, the weeping, and the hated. We'll not turn to all these passages, but the reversal comes through again in the parable of the banquet in chapter 14 of Luke's book, where in the end they bring in the homeless and the destitute as guests of the master, while the others are locked out from the banquet. Or at the end of chapter 16 in the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, where Lazarus is the leper who used to beg at the gate of the rich man, and they both die, and Lazarus, the poor man, the beggar, finds himself in glory while the rich man is in hell. Or in chapter 18, the rich ruler goes away sad with Jesus summing up that it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to be saved. Now, all of that is just to say this. Mary 
in Luke chapter 1 is at the start of a stream of passages in Luke's book that state again and again and again that the Son of God has come for the poor and the needy. And, And before we say anything else, and we do need to clarify some of this, before we say that, though, we do need to just take this seriously, don't we? Our modern obsession, and it is a modern obsession with material comfort and prosperity as a sign of the blessed life, has very little support in Luke's Gospel. It's not that the Scriptures pretend that poverty isn't difficult or it doesn't need to be addressed. Rather, the point is that God's Word does not look at the wealthy and say, yeah, they've done well for themselves. That's, uh, that's the Christmas letter, isn't it? It's not the Bible. In fact, it seems that more often than not, it's the materially poor who have a better grasp on reality and a better understanding of what life is all about. And we should take that seriously. It should be a warning to us. But we need to say something else, because if that's all we understand, then, then lots of Luke's book will be surprising to us. So let's notice, secondly, just as a point of clarification, that the poor God is for are not always poor. The poor God is for are not always poor. This, I think, is crucial for our understanding of Mary's song. So just jump through Luke with me again and turn to chapter 7. This is immediately after Jesus has preached, blessed are the poor. What happens? Chapter 7, verse 2. A centurion comes to him. Now, a centurion would have been a reasonably wealthy man, a man of status, who is outside of Israel and part of the ruling occupying nation. He sends people to Jesus because his servant is about to die. And it's the religious Jewish leaders who come to Jesus to tell him, listen, this guy's a worthy man. He's an amazing guy. He deserves for his servant to be healed. But as Jesus approaches the house of the centurion, uh, he sends some messengers out to him. Listen to what he says, chapter 7 and verse 6. When Jesus was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him, and turning to the crowd that followed him, he said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. Now, I think this is the opposite of what you would expect to find, given what we've been seeing in Luke's Gospel, given what Mary sings in her song. The centurion is rich, powerful, and influential. Yet it seems, doesn't it, that his statement of personal unworthiness qualifies this rich man as a poor man in terms of Jesus' ministry. Poverty, it seems, is not simply material, but moral. Poverty in Luke's Gospel is not just, I have no cash money, but I have no moral money, no spiritual cash, if you like. I am bankrupt before God. It's the same idea in Luke chapter 18 and 19. This is immediately before and after Jesus said it's impossible for the rich to be saved. First, he tells the parable of a Pharisee and a tax collector. uh, With a Pharisee standing in the temple and saying how amazing he is that God should listen to him. And the tax collector, don't forget, tax collectors are rich, standing at a distance, beating his breast, saying he's a sinner. And the tax collector is saved and the Pharisee is lost. Again, the rich man acknowledges, doesn't he, his spiritual poverty and is blessed. Then in chapter 19, 
After saying it's impossible for the rich to be saved, the rich tax collector Zacchaeus climbs up a tree, entertains Jesus for a surprise meal, and is saved, shedding his material wealth as he receives the undeserved blessing of God. You see, this is Luke's point. The poor that God is for are not always materially poor, but they are always humble, poor in spirit. See, if you come back to Luke chapter 1, to Mary's song, there's a little word here, which is the key, I think, to unlocking all of this. It's in verse 50, and it's there in verse 54 as well, and it's the word mercy. God's blessing is founded on his mercy. Mercy, which by its very definition is undeserved, the opposite of what is deserved. And mercy, it seems from Luke's book, is hard for the rich because they are inclined to think they are not in need of it. But the truth is that we all need it. Now, that means in a really important sense, if we're ever going to sing Mary's song, if we're ever going to experience this kind of eureka moment, this this rejoicing in the Lord moment, then we need to start with this, that we are poor. We are poor. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you have. It doesn't matter where you're from. Because before God, all of us are the same. None of us have anything to claim. None of us have anything to appeal to. We are all spiritually poor. And if you don't see yourself like that, if you don't think of yourself like that, then you are deceived. And you will never experience the joy that Mary experiences at the beginning of her song. You'll never sing with her. You'll miss the blessing that she's found because the blessing comes to the poor, the spiritually poor. So with that in mind... Let me finish with what I think are the three key lessons for us from these verses. First one is this. Deep spiritual joy comes from acknowledging unworthiness. It's really hard to capture this idea in a sentence, but Mary in Luke 1 is singing her heart out, not because of her circumstances, but because of her understanding that her circumstances are no longer a good indicator of God's attitude towards her. Actually, her poverty, spiritually and materially, is itself, it seems, the qualification for the blessing of God. Not because the humility is a credit that pays for it, we've been talking about that in Romans, haven't we? But because God's blessing is a gift received by the humble, not by the proud. Spiritual achievements, godliness, worthiness are not a sign of future blessing. Humility is. Humility is. Think about it like this. Let me give you a way to ruin Christmas. If you want a way to ruin Christmas. Do you want to hear it? Here it is. Whenever someone at Christmas gives you a gift, this is the way you ruin it for them. They hand you the gift and you get out your wallet or your purse or your piggy bank and you say, thank you very much, what do I owe you for that? What do I owe you for that? You would rob the joy, wouldn't you? Why? Because the joy of the gift is not that you deserve it, but that it's the generosity of the giver, the love of the giver, which is being shown in the gift. And if you undermine that, well, you kill the joy. I wonder at times if that's why Christians are often miserable. Why? Well, because instead of rejoicing that God's promise rests on mercy, displayed in an undeserved gift, we spend all of our time focusing on reasons why we might deserve it, or worrying that we've done something so bad that God might take it away from us. But the point is that happy Christians aren't Christians who are always going on about their worthiness or their godliness, but about God's mercy. Happy Christians, Christians who are growing in their faith, feel increasingly worse about themselves and talk openly about that, even as they are exponentially more confident in Christ and his mercy. 
The road to joy, Mary's road to joy, is the road down. So for Mary, whose life actually is about to get a lot worse and a lot more difficult, she is able to sing of her joy in her humility because she's discovered that God is a merciful saviour. A saviour for people like her who know they have no other hope. Of course, Mary doesn't see, does she, exactly how this will work out yet. But we know that the child that she's carrying will die on the cross. That the eternal son who's taken on human flesh will give his life, shed his blood for our salvation. So you and I can sing with even greater gusto than Mary. My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God my Saviour. Because God in Christ has given himself for me, even though I know increasingly that I don't deserve it. One of the most helpful books I've read this year is a little book on humility by a guy called Andrew Murray. He writes this. I've quoted this before here, but let me read it to you again. He says this, Let us look at our lives and see whether we gladly glory in weakness whether we take pleasure, as the Apostle Paul did, in injuries, in necessities, in distresses. Yes, let us ask whether we have learned to regard a reproof, just or unjust, a reproof from a friend or an enemy, an injury or trouble or difficulty into which others bring us, above all as an opportunity of proving that Jesus is all to us, how our own pleasure or honour are nothing, and how humiliation is in very truth what we take pleasure in. It is indeed blessed, the deep happiness of heaven, to be so free from self that whatever is said of us or done to us is lost and swallowed up in the thought that Jesus is all. Secondly, material wealth is a fleeting and dangerous pleasure. Really, this is just the flip side, isn't it, of the previous point, but I think it's worth just mentioning it in some more detail and making sure we're clear on it before we finish. In Mary's song, riches, full bellies, thrones, and proud thoughts are all precursors to disasters. They are dangerous pleasures because they are more fleeting than they give the impression. They give a sense of blessing without its substance. Yeah, think about it like this. Material wealth is to blessing what McDonald's is to culinary satisfaction. You know, McDonald's looks good, doesn't it? It should be up on the screen. There you go. McDonald's looks good. Feels like a good idea even when you go for it. It even tastes quite good at first, but it is not long before you're regretting it or you're hungry again. And either you repeat the mistake and go back or you find something worth eating that's going to give you genuine satisfaction. So I think it is in the Bible with material wealth, with pride, with thrones, with status, they appear satisfying, but ultimately leave you empty, scattered and dethroned in Mary's song. Now, and I wonder whether this is the case with a lot of us, and I include myself in this, that we don't just ever stop to think that the dissatisfaction that we feel in lots of areas of our lives is not really a desire for, a, I don't know, a bigger house, a better phone, a better job or a change in circumstance, but really is an unfulfilled desire for the Lord. I know we talk, don't we, in simple categories of, of having like a, a God-shaped hole in our hearts. But it's more than that, isn't it? it? It's more like our lives are really a collection, if you like, of, of raging desires, things that we long for. And we repeatedly make the mistake of taking those desires at face value. 
instead of reorientating them towards the one who can alone satisfy, which is God himself. You know, actually, you know, Mary's eureka moment, if you like, in this song is when she realizes that the unfulfilled desires of her humble position will ultimately only be fulfilled by her promise-keeping saviour. Now, it's not just here that she sees her sin and her need of mercy, but rather she sees that she's a sinner in need of mercy, but she sees at the same time that the mercy of God is all that she needs. It's the desire of her heart. That's it. That's when the penny drops. So let me ask you this morning, not just have you seen your need of mercy, but have you seen that that mercy that you need is the fulfillment of all your very deep desires? All that you want is fulfilled in that. C.S. Lewis used to explain it like conversation with the angel gave. So much so, so drenched in... I hate to end with this in a way because it's sort of like the application of every sermon you've ever heard, but it's true. Are the answers for our life situation today? And me. We're spiritually poor. And God's word teaches us that God's blessing for the spiritually poor is deeply, deeply satisfying at a level that we've always been left unsatisfied by everything else. And we'll find that in the pages of God's word. And so if, like Mary, we will drench ourselves in God's promises, we will find that he will sustain us with a song of magnification of the Lord, of rejoicing in our hearts. Let me pray as I close. Heavenly Father, we want to confess before you our spiritual poverty. There is nothing in us that you should give us your blessing or your mercy. There's nothing that we have done to deserve it. But we thank you that you bless the undeserving, those who are unworthy, who will own their spiritual poverty. And thank you that that blessing that we receive in Christ, in the salvation that we receive from him, that that blessing is deeply satisfying in a way that everything else has left us unsatisfied. And we pray that more and more you would help us to drench ourselves in your promises, that they would shape our understanding of our lives, that we would learn to read your love for us, not off our circumstances, but from your word and its promises. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.